Welcome to Then and Now with Ed Stevens, President of the International Preterist Association. Then and Now is a weekly podcast designed to explore past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in order to equip us for guiding the church in its ongoing reform. And now, with today's message, here's Ed Stevens. Well, here we are back for another episode of Then and Now, where we learn from the past to shape a better future. Let's pray before we get into our studies. Lord of all that is in the heavens above, on the earth and under the earth, we exalt and adore you. We thank you for creating us and saving us. May you work in our lives to shape us according to your holy will, to bring you much glory and honor among all the nations for all generations of the age of the ages. May your Spirit be with us and in us to guide us as we study your sovereign acts in history to judge the wicked and reward the righteous. May we take these lessons of history to heart. It is in the name of your Son and our Redeemer that we pray. Amen. In coming weeks, we'll be looking at a lot of material from Josephus. If you do not have a copy of his book, The Complete Works of Josephus, this is the time to get one. It's available on our website at www.preterist.org. You'll want to read what he has to say about all the signs they saw occurring at that time when the war was just about to break out. I would also recommend getting copies of F.F. Bruce's book, Israel and the Nations, as well as my book, First Century Events in Chronological Order. This will really help you get a handle on all this history that fulfilled the predictions of all the prophets, apostles, and Jesus. All three of these books are available right there on our website. This time we'll be looking at Gessius Florus, the Roman procurator in Judea, at this very time, AD 64 to 66, and all the things that he did to provoke the Jews to go to war. We will also look at the probable fulfillment of the abomination of desolation. At this time, in late 65 and early 66, was the last chance for the Jewish people to flee from Judea easily and safely. Yet it seems that most of them stayed and got caught up in the war. Here in April of 66, violence erupted in Caesarea. This violent clash occurred in the month of Artemisius, which is April and May of 66 AD. Josephus says that this is the event that inflamed the seditious to revolt. The Greek residents of Caesarea a few years earlier in AD 60 had obtained control of the government of the city from Nero, putting the Jewish inhabitants at a serious disadvantage. In AD 60, Berylus, one of Nero's tutors, appealed to Nero and obtained a letter revoking the equal rights status of the Jews in Caesarea. This emboldened the Syrian Greek inhabitants of Caesarea and provoked the Jewish citizens to resist these encroachments upon their freedom and prosperity. Over the next six years, there was intensification of that conflict, pushing in the direction of open rebellion. For Josephus' comments on this, you might want to look at Antiquities Book 20, Sections 173 through 184, and also The Wars, Book 2, Chapter 13, Section 7. 
All these uh, references are in our lesson outline, so if you have the PDF for this, uh, you'll have all those references, and I won't be giving all of them here in our study. I'll let you find those in the lesson outline if you're interested in looking them up. You might also want to go to the Josephus website, which is www.josephus.org, for more info on all of this that we're looking at tonight. The building which the Jews used for their synagogue there in Caesarea was owned by a Greek who would not sell it to the Jews, even though they repeatedly offered him many times its value. He built other structures right around the synagogue, leaving only a very narrow passage between the buildings, thus making it very difficult for the Jews to access the uh, entrance to their synagogue. The Jews complained about this impediment, but it only got worse. Then, on a Sabbath day in the spring of AD 66, as the Jews were gathering at the synagogue, a Greek insulted the Jews by sacrificing some birds on top of an earthenware jar at the entrance to the synagogue, implying that the Jews were unclean and leprous and that their occupancy of the premises was defiling it and polluting it. This inflamed some of the younger hot-headed Jews beyond containment. It very quickly erupted in violence on both sides. Jucundus, the Roman commander of cavalry, intervened and took away the earthenware jar and attempted to stop the violent clash, but the Greek inhabitants were too intense for him. The Greeks had the upper hand in the struggle and left the Jews no other option but to take their scrolls and relocate to the nearby city of Narbata. The date of this clash is given by Josephus as the twelfth year of the reign of Nero in the month of Artemisius, which would be April and May of, of the year A.D. 66. This was evidently about the time of Passover, uh, probably just before it. In that same time span of April 66, Florus ordered the temple treasury to give him 17 talents of gold. Now, this is a very significant event and is very important for us to understand if you want to know why the Jews revolted so quickly and so harshly at this very time. It's related to the gold in the temple. Let's look at that. The Jewish leadership from Caesarea and Jerusalem appealed to Governor Florus to correct the injustice done to them by the Greeks in Caesarea, but it only made matters worse. The Roman governor, Gessius Florus, did everything he could to provoke the Jews into open rebellion, and he succeeded. When the ethnic violence broke out in Caesarea between the Jews and the Greeks, Florus should have intervened with his troops and pacified both parties. The Jews in Caesarea even bribed Florus with eight talents of gold to intervene on their behalf. But he took their money and did nothing to help them, and the bribe only made him greedy for more. Florus blew up the war into a flame, Josephus says, by ordering the temple treasury to give him 17 talents of gold. 
Josephus claims this action by Florus was the very provocation which pushed the Jews over the edge into revolt. And we'll understand more about that later as we discuss this here, but uh, Josephus is exactly correct, and we'll see why. When Florus' representatives came to Jerusalem to collect the 17 talents of gold, and it wasn't just any gold, it was temple gold, some of the seditious insulted Florus by taking up collection in the marketplace to help the poor Florus, who was in such a destitute condition. This enraged Florus when he found out about it, and he marched hastily with an army of horsemen and footmen against Jerusalem that he might bring the city into subjection. In that same time period, when he got there to Jerusalem, it tells us in Josephus that Florus encamped inside Jerusalem and killed 3,600 of the Jews there in this same time period, Artemisius, uh, on the 16th day of the month in AD 66. His hasty march to Jerusalem must have been an alarming thing for the citizens of Jerusalem. When they saw the Roman army of Florus approaching, they went out of the city to meet him peaceably and welcome him to the city. However, Florus was not in the mood for pleasantries and sent one of his centurions, Capito, with 50 soldiers on ahead of him to instruct the Jewish people to go back into the city. Florus then brought his army into Jerusalem and camped in Herod's palace. The next day he met with the Jewish leadership, but when they refused to deliver up the youths who had mocked him by taking up a collection for the poor Florus, he ordered his soldiers to plunder the upper marketplace and kill anyone they found there, including men, women, children, and even infants. Some of the Jewish people who died were of equestrian order. That is, they had the equivalent of Roman citizenship and aristocratic status, whom Flora soldiers illegally whipped and crucified. They even threatened King Agrippa's sister Bernice, who happened to be in Jerusalem fulfilling a vow at the temple at that very time. According to Josephus and the online Jewish Encyclopedia, in their article on Gessius Florus, this slaughter of 3,600 citizens of Jerusalem occurred on the 16th day of the month Artemisius in AD 66, which is April. Well, this didn't satisfy Gessius Florus, even after 3,600 people paid the price for his greed. So he had two more cohorts of troops come from Caesarea, and he wanted to use them to seize the rest of the gold in the temple. Evidently, he got that 17 talents, plus the other eight talents that they'd given him as a bribe for Caesarea. So he wanted the rest of the gold in the temple. On the next day, after the massacre in the upper market of 3,600 people, Florus ordered the chief priest to send the people out to meet the two cohorts of soldiers that were coming in from Caesarea. However, he had instructed the incoming soldiers not to return the salutes of the people, and that if any of the Jewish people complained about this rude behavior, to use their clubs on them. This is exactly what happened. 
As the people began to flee away, the cavalry ran them down and trampled them underfoot. Josephus said, A great many fell down dead by the strokes of the Romans, and even more by their own violence in crushing one another at the gates, trying to get back in the city. The reason Florus had two more cohorts of soldiers come from Caesarea was so that he could forcibly enter the temple and seize the rest of the gold that was stored there. Evidently, the goal of the soldiers was to enter through the Bezetha quarter and then through the Tower of Antonia and seize upon the temple. But the whole populace of the city saw what he was up to and blocked all the lanes of the city so that it became impassable for his soldiers. Then the zealots quickly knocked out the cloisters which adjoined the Anantonia Tower to the temple so that in case Flora's soldiers did get as far as the Tower of Antonia, they would not have easy access to the temple. Well, this frustrated the attempt of Florus to get into the temple area to get the rest of the gold out of the temple. So he took two cohorts and went back to Caesarea, leaving one cohort there as an occupational force to help the Jewish leadership restore order and keep the peace. Now, there's a whole lot more to this story, and so we're not finished with it by any means yet. Uh, we're going to get into the, the good parts of it here shortly. You're going to like this. This attempt to get control of the temple gold was viewed by the Jews as an attack on Judaism itself. The temple gold had no images of Caesar on it. And since the Jews were no longer allowed to mint their own gold coins, the depletion of imageless coinage from the temple would virtually shut down the sacrificial system. Sacrificial animals could only be purchased with imageless gold. The money changers relied upon an abundant supply of such imageless gold coins to exchange Roman coins with images on them for temple coins without the images. This money exchange business was very profitable, as we see even in Jesus' day, when he cast out the money changers, overturned their tables there in the temple. Without imageless coins in the temple treasury, there would be no purchase of sacrificial animals without bringing coins with images on them into the temple, which would be an abomination. Florus was attempting to shut down the Jewish sacrificial system and bring images of Caesar into the temple in order to convert it to a Roman shrine. The Jews understood what the intentions of Florus were and thwarted his attempt by blocking all the lanes of the city and tearing down the connection between the Tower of Antonia and the temple cloisters so that his soldiers were unable to get to the temple and seize its gold. This was not just a random act of greed on the part of Florus nor was it just normal gold coinage that he wished to obtain. It was a calculated assault on the Torah-compliant gold coinage that the temple required for purchase of sacrifices. Josephus seems to allude to this in veiled language when he said the blocking of those lanes of the city cooled the avarice of Florus. For whereas he was eager to obtain 
the treasures of God. As soon as he saw there was no way to accomplishment on that occasion, left off his attempt, took two of the three cohorts, and headed back to Caesarea. And so Josephus kind of hints there that uh, Florus was trying to obtain the treasures of God. He was trying to empty the treasury of the temple, which belonged to God, and they were imageless coins. No Roman coinage with human images on it could be brought into the temple. This would have violated the second commandment forbidding graven images. Four years before this, in AD 62, the Romans had deliberately stopped the minting of any more Torah-compliant coinage. The Jews were not allowed to mint their own coins that were Torah-compliant. So this meant that the supply of coinage that they had in the temple would be all they could store in the temple treasury. Unfortunately, the supply of coinage had a tendency to dwindle down as a result of the money changer activity, so that eventually they would run out of gold and be forced to bring coins with Caesar's image into the temple. Florus wished to hasten that process by seizing all the Torah-compliant gold out of the temple. The Jews understood very well what Florus was trying to do. They had seen this on the horizon four years earlier when the Romans stopped minting Torah-compliant coinage. So when Florus made his attempt with his armies to seize the temple gold, the citizens of Jerusalem immediately turned back upon him and stopped the violence of his attempt and stopped up the narrow passages of the city so that his troops could not get to the temple. Furthermore, some of the seditious got immediately upon those cloisters of the temple that joined to Antonia and cut them down. So we see this is an attempt to bring idolatrous images on their coins into the temple. The Romans were trying to convert the temple of God into a pagan temple of worship of Caesar. Ken Gentry, in his Beast of Revelation book, page 64, explains the deification of Nero and his appearance on the Roman coinage at this time. Very interesting here. That Nero actually was worshipped is evident from inscriptions found in Ephesus in which he is called Almighty God and Savior. As his megalomania increased, the tendency to worship him as ruler of the world became stronger, and in Rome his features appeared on the Colossus of the Sun near the Golden House, while his head was represented on the coinage with a radiant crown. Nero deified his child by Papea and Papea herself after their deaths on the coinage. Another writer noted, This coin that they show a picture of, a silver tetradrachm, or four denarius piece, struck in Syria, refers to Nero's wife Papea, whom he married in 63 AD. In AD 65, she became the victim of Nero's brutality when she died as a result of a kick to the abdomen while pregnant, which Nero had delivered during a fit of anger. The back side of this coin shows Nero wearing a radiant crown, the headdress of the divine. 
Nero was the first living Roman Caesar to wear this crown on coins of this type. Before this, only men who had been deified after death, such as Julius Caesar and Augustus, were given this honor. Note what Collingwood says about this. The common currency of Judea in 66 CE had come to include coins bearing the image both of a living god, King Nero, and of his dead god, wife, Papea, whom he had slain on the opposite sides of the same coin. Now, did you catch that? It said the common currency of Judea in 66 CE. So, what was Florus trying to do? He was trying to bring coins that had the image of Lord God Nero on those coins into the temple. Kind of scary, isn't it? Well, it certainly scared the Jews. Uh, They considered it an abomination to allow that to happen. And so they were ready to drop everything and invest their lives in an all-out rebellion against that attempt to bring images of Nero into the temple. Uh, This writer here, um, I believe it's uh, Collinwood, goes on to say, Now what kind of coin are we to suppose that Florus removed from the temple treasury? Presumably, the only kind of coin that the temple treasury was allowed to hold, namely, coins without an image either of Caesar or of any other man, and a, a supply of which was already so short that any further scarcity of it would greatly impede temple worship and yet further enrich the money changers in the outer court. Presumably, the 17 talents that Floris removed from the temple treasury was all he could get, namely all it had. The temple coin supply once had been far greater, but had been depleted by prior Roman depredations. When the Roman commander Sabinus seized the temple and plundered it during the Feast of Pentecost in 4 B.C., amidst all the succession crisis following the death of Herod the Great, Josephus tells us, the soldiers fell upon the treasure of God, which was now deserted, and plundered about 400 talents, of which some Sabinus got together all that was not carried away by the soldiers. Remarkable 400 talents of that gold at the time Herod died in 4 BC. And what kind of coin are we to suppose that the Jews of Jerusalem threw into baskets taunting Florus to take them instead of temple treasure? The idolatrous coins of the empire, of course. The message was clear. You want money? Take it in your own abundant coin not the scarce image-free coin that is acceptable for temple donation. One could hardly have been procurator of Judea and failed either to get the point or to understand the underlying religious issue. Indeed, it could hardly have been mistaken even in Rome, where Jews by 66 CE were a far from unfamiliar government's problem. Florus' action can only be construed as Josephus construes it, as a deliberate religious provocation intended to force the temple to accept the image of the emperor 
represented as a god, onto its premises as part of its ritual. By ceasing to strike Torah-compliant coins after 62 CE, Roman authorities in Judea had been systematically pursuing this policy even before Florus attempted to seize the temple's small remaining stock of Torah-compliant coin in 66 AD. Where Caligula's statue had been too large to enter, might not Nero's small coins infiltrate? Not surprisingly, the temple priesthood responded by discontinuing sacrifice for the emperor, effectively delegitimating Roman rule over Judea and countenancing revolt. Now that was taken from a website here, and I've got that listed in the lesson outline. If you'd like to read all he has to say about that, just get the lesson outline and you'll have that website link. A person who goes by the email epithet of Collinwood wrote the post that we just quoted and claimed that the Jewish writer Spengler was right on target when he asserted that the robbing of 17 talents from the temple was directly related to emperor worship and the bringing of images of the emperor into the temple via the coinage that had the emperor's deified image on it. In Jewish eyes, it was the same issue they confronted earlier in AD 40 when Caligula ordered Petronius and his army to go to Jerusalem and put the statue of himself in the temple there. That was an abomination which the Jews were prepared to resist to the bitter end. Fortunately, Caligula died before the order was ever carried out. But the same kind of thing is involved here with Florus. He was attempting to force the Jews to bring images into the temple. The Jews would rather go to war than allow that to happen. But there's more to the story than what Josephus tells us. Yosipon appears to fill in some of the gaps. When the Roman procurator Gessius Florus brought his soldiers to Jerusalem to confiscate all the gold from the temple in May or April of 66 AD, Yosipon writes that it was a brash young man Eliezer ben Anani, or Ananias, who blew the shofar in Jerusalem and rallied the citizens to block the lanes of the city to keep Florus's troops from getting to the temple. Hegesippus claims that it was this very same Eliezer who was the originator of the war. Eliezer then seized control of the temple and used it as his fortress in violation of the law from that point forward. About this same time, the angelic armies were seen in the clouds over Palestine, signaling that the Son of Man had arrived to begin his judgment and the pouring out of his wrath. A couple of months later, Eliezer illegally stopped the daily sacrifices of all Gentiles. This was totally unprecedented, monstrous, and lawless. Never had Gentile sacrifices and offerings been refused. At the very time God was grafting the Gentiles into his church, the zealots were breaking off all religious contact with the Gentiles. What a contrast! The moderate Jewish leadership and priests all reminded Eleazar 
that to do such a thing would be to set himself above the law. They demanded that he restore the sacrifices, but he defiantly refused. Eliezer, by the way, is the son of Ananias ben Nadibus, who was the high priest when Second Thessalonians was written, as well as four years later in A.D. 58 during Paul's trial in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21 to 23. It was Ananias who ordered that Paul be struck on the mouth. After being struck, Paul predicted, God is about to strike you, you whitewashed wall, and then called him a lawbreaker. Now remember that, a lawbreaker, a lawless one. That's going to come in handy here shortly. And his son was Eleazar, the very guy who blew the shofar rallied the troops, blocked the lanes of the city, and then took over control of the temple, which he continued to hold until near the end of the war. So, like father, like son, his father, Ananias, was a lawbreaker, and Eliezer himself was a chip off the old block. He was a lawbreaker par excellence. He made his father look like a a lawkeeper by comparison. Eight years after the trial of Paul, in September of AD 66, Ananias was indeed struck dead by the zealot leader Menachem, immediately after which his son Eliezer used his own temple soldiers to avenge his father by killing Menachem and his soldiers in Jerusalem, again in violation of the law. Jewish people were not to kill their own people anywhere in the land, but especially not in Jerusalem. I mean, that was a violation not only of the law, but of the holiness of the city of Jerusalem. Thus, Eliezer opposed every other zealot leader and exalted himself above them all and broke the law every time he turned around. As Josephine indicates in chapters 72 and 75, Eliezer was the one who literally sat in the temple controlling all the affairs of the temple, priesthood and sacrifices, and used the temple as his fortress during nearly the entire war, which began in April of AD 66, and he continued control of the temple until just before Titus began the siege in AD 70. Eliezer took it upon himself to make changes in the law and customs that had always been followed since the beginning of their nation under Moses. Thus it appears that Eliezer may have been the man of lawlessness that Apostle Paul pointed to in his second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2. Well, let's talk about the abomination of desolation. Last week I promised that we would try to get into this a little bit, and so I think we've got plenty of time here. Let's do it. Somewhere in this time frame, the spring of AD 66, just before the war began, we would have to place the abomination of desolation. Both Matthew and Mark, in their accounts of the Olivet Discourse, say that the abomination would stand in a holy place where it should not be. Luke was definitely aware of both of those accounts when he composed his version of the discourse, And it is clear that he understood the abomination to be armies or army encampments 
in the area around Jerusalem or even inside Jerusalem. We noted above the movements and actions of Florus's troops in his attempt to seize all the gold in the temple and force the Jews to bring coins into the temple with Caesar's deified image on them. This was viewed by the people of Jerusalem as an attack on their religion, not just on their pocketbook. They would not sit idle and let Florus get away with this. This phrase, abomination of desolation, would immediately arouse the interest of Jewish people because they believed that at the end of the age, an evil man of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, would do something abominable like Antiochus did. The word abomination is referring to an abominable person or thing which would defile the temple or Jerusalem and cause it to be desolated and destroyed. The word abomination had strong connections with idols and pagan sacrifices to idols or anything unclean which pollutes the temple and the city of Jerusalem. Something utterly abhorrent like this would happen to force the Jews to go to war, just like they did in the days of Antiochus. As Antiochus tried to Hellenize the Jews and change their religion to pagan idolatry, so the Romans tried to paganize the Jews and force idolatry and emperor worship upon them. The approach of Florus' Roman armies toward Jerusalem could easily have been understood by the Jewish people as a signal to flee. It was the first time since the days of Caligula in AD 39-41 that a Roman commander had brought that many soldiers, three cohorts, to Jerusalem with such a hostile intent to rob them of their imageless gold and force them to use coins with Caesar's image on them. Plus, there were zealot armies forming at this very time in the area who came to Jerusalem shortly after this with their armies to take over the leadership of the war effort. So there were several armies encircling Jerusalem at this very time, including even the angelic armies that were seen in the clouds and in the sky a few days after Passover at this very time. If there were any Christians remaining in Jerusalem after the Neronic persecution, which is doubtful, they would have seen all this army and angelic activity and remembered the warning that Christ had given them to flee when they saw armies encircling Jerusalem. This would have been the last chance for any remaining Christians to get out safely so that none of them would be caught up in the Zealot takeover of the city shortly afterwards and so that they could remain alive until the parousia and the rapture. The longer they waited, the riskier it became. But we have no mention of any Christians still being left in Jerusalem at this time, nor does Josephus indicate that any Christians participated in the rebellion afterwards. If any Christians were still in Palestine a few days after Passover in AD 66, they would have seen the angelic armies in the clouds. So, Either of these events, either the armies of Florus or the armies of the Zealots or the angelic armies in the clouds would have provided a clear signal 
for the Christians and Jews as well to abandon Judea for refuge elsewhere, to get out of harm's way. And as we see in Josephus, many more signals to leave were provided within the next two months. Menachem the Zealot took his army to Masada and captured it from the Roman garrison there, while Eleazar, the captain of the temple guard, the son of Ananias, as we've referred to before, he was the captain of the temple guard, so he had an army under his command, the temple guard, and he used his soldiers to occupy the temple and put a stop to the daily Roman peace offering, as well as all the other sacrifices of the Gentiles. They quit accepting any sacrifices from any Gentiles. Armed bands of zealots were running around Judea and all around Jerusalem at this time, and even inside Jerusalem itself. By August of AD 66, there were plenty of armies encompassing Jerusalem, inside and outside. Jerusalem was a holy place where such armies ought not to be standing. The Zealot leaders brought their armies right into the city and into the temple and camped there inside the temple where they definitely ought not to be. Josephus, a priest who was concerned for the sanctity and holiness of the temple and the purity of the temple, was horrified at this abomination by Eleazar and his temple guard, and even more so when the zealot factions begin killing each other and the priest and the innocent worshipers right there inside the temple. This indeed was a horrific abomination which caused its desolation. The outbreak of the rebellion cut short the persecution upon the church in Judea, since the Jews now had to turn their attention to preparations for the war and their own survival against Rome. Conditions in Judea and Jerusalem now grew progressively worse by the day. Florus had succeeded in provoking the Jews into open rebellion so that his own perverse activity would appear innocent to Nero. It is therefore not surprising that some of the priesthood, under the leadership of Eleazar ben Ananias, shortly afterwards made their break with Rome official by stopping the daily sacrifice, peace offering, for the Roman emperor, as well as all the other sacrificing of all Gentiles. The removal of 17 talents of imageless gold from the temple treasury had left them little choice. The temple could no longer function normally. They would have to mint new coins, and that meant revolt against Rome. When the zealots made this decision to revolt, their minting of new coins most likely would have begun immediately. The zealots intensified their efforts of gathering men, weapons, and finances for the revolt. They urged all of their sympathizers throughout Israel and the diaspora to support and join the zealot cause thus deceiving the nations to go to war, as we see in the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Josephus dates the unofficial beginning of the revolt from this very incident with Florus. The zealots were provoked to go to war by his greed and brutality. The people despised Florus even more than they despised the previous governors 
of Felix, Festus, and Albinus. Florus urged Cestius Gallus to intervene at this time and crush the rebellion before it gained any more momentum. But instead, Cestius merely sent an emissary, Neapolitanus, to inspect the situation and determine how serious it really was. This only bought the zealots more time to fan the flames of revolt and prepare for it even more. Evidently, Cestius did not trust Florus' assessment of the situation, since the Jews had also sent a delegation to Cestius at the same time Florus had sent his delegation. This provocation by Florus happened right around the time of Passover in the spring of 66 AD. Josephus says the killing of 3,600 citizens and residents of Jerusalem occurred on the 16th day of Artemisius, just five days before the angelic armies were seen in the clouds on the 21st day of Artemisius. And so there we have it. You can see where I'm headed with all this. I'm trying to help us see that perhaps this incident with Gessius Florus was more than it appears to be. It was not just a greedy procurator trying to get his hands on some more gold for his own pocket. It was seemingly an attempt to bring images of Nero into the temple and defile the temple, and they knew that would provoke the Jews to revolt. After the incident in AD 40, they knew for sure that the Jews would revolt if image of Caesar were brought into the temple. And so Gessius Florus was attempting to do that very thing. That was seen by the Jewish people as paganization of their temple and an abomination to allow that to happen. And so they had to go to war. Uh, They had no choice. And we also see here this brash young man, the son of Ananias, the high priest who had uh, struck Apostle Paul in the mouth. And Paul said, God is about to strike you, and did just eight years later. Well, his son, Eliezer, is the very one who blew the shofar and rallied the troops and blocked the lanes of the city and then took his temple troops that he had as a temple guard and took over control of the temple and remained in control of the temple throughout the war until near the time of Titus's siege in 70 AD. So we notice that Eleazar was very lawless in his activities, far more lawless than his father Ananias was. And it's interesting that when Paul wrote that information about the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, at the very time he wrote that, Ananias was the high priest in Jerusalem. And it appears that his son, Eleazar, may very well be the man of lawlessness that Apostle Paul was pointing to. Very interesting. Well, that'll do it for this time. Uh, In coming weeks, we're going to be looking at a lot more material from Josephus, so if you don't have a copy of him, you probably ought to get a copy. It's available on our website, and I'd highly recommend it. Also get a copy of my First Century Events book. A lot of the material that we're talking about here is coming straight out of my First Century Events book, so it wouldn't hurt to get a copy of that as well. That'll really help you get a handle on all this history 
that fulfills the predictions that Jesus and the prophets and the apostles made beforehand. Well, that'll wrap it up for this time. If any of our listeners have questions or comments about what we looked at here in this session, don't hesitate to email me. My email address is preterist1 at preterist.org. That will do it. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time. This has been Then and Now with Ed Stevens. We would love to hear from you. Send your email to preterist1 at preterist.org. Our website has many great articles, books, and audio video resources. The address is www.preterist.org. This teaching ministry depends on your donations, and you share in all the good fruit that we produce. To make a donation or support monthly, simply go to our website, www.preterist.org, or call us at 814-368-6578. Join us again next time for Then and Now, where we study the past to shape a better future.